Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word and to examine a very, very important passage about the Ten Commandments um, that relates directly to our lives. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see what are the important principles that we need to appropriate into our lives and that we need to grow in. Uh, give us the minds to be cognizant of, of how you want us to live life for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. There's a TV show that I like to watch sometimes called Leverage. Leverage. And uh, Leverage is a TV show that's all about stealing. The premise of the show is that there's a group of thieves who act like modern-day Robin Hoods. They rob from the rich and give back to the poor, who've been taken advantage of by the rich. And I think the title sequence sums it up quite nicely. The rich and powerful take what they want. We steal it back for you. Sometimes bad guys make the best good guys. We provide leverage. Now leverage, if you don't know what that means, is just another word for influence. It's powerful influence. When you have leverage, you can manipulate and control a situation or other people to get what you want. And I think the TV show Leverage illustrates just that. These modern day thieves turn the tables and give the disadvantaged poor the upper hand over the rich. Whereas before it was the, the other way around. They give them leverage over the rich. And they do it through a, very, a variety of different ways of stealing. Uh, for example, there's one character who is a hacker. And uh, that's the character on the screen right there. He's a hacker. And he hacks into computers, online databases, and security programs to steal information and manipulate online transactions. Another character is a grifter. A grifter. And a grifter is basically just a person who cons people through the art of pretending to be someone she's not. Uh, she makes up identities to manipulate people's reactions through deception. Um, you could say that she steals people's opinions. That's kind of her role. Another character is just a plain old thief. Because at the end of the day, you probably need to break into something real and steal something tangible, like money in a bank vault. Uh, but all in all, leverage is all about 20,000 different ways to steal and get away with it. And the show makes it look like there are some times when it's okay to steal. The ends justify the means. And yes, maybe sometimes the bad guys make the best good guys. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that nothing could be further from the truth. As fun as a show as Leverage is to watch, it doesn't justify or condone robbery, theft, or the like. The ends don't justify the means. Just because it may be for a good cause doesn't mean it's right to go, uh, may mean it's the right way to go about it. And that's because theft is more than just taking objects away from other people. Theft is more than seeking for justice. There's something that the, the act of thievery communicates, and there's something that the lack of thievery communicates also. And both of those means are just as important as their ends. So as we continue to roll through the Ten Commandments, we come to this Eighth Commandment, which very simply says, do not steal. Do not steal. And you can find it stated this way 
in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 19, or Exodus 20, verse 15. And the big idea of the Eighth Commandment is very simply this. God owns everything. God owns everything. God owns everything in this world, and as a result, he sets the rules. He determines who should have what and how everything should run. That's what it means to have exclusive ownership. But I think it's always helpful to see this played out in story form, as we've done so many times before. And so I want to draw your attention this morning to three stories in the Old Testament and one story in the New Testament. And as we go along, we'll draw some conclusions about stealing. The way I'm going to outline what we learn will be with this particular chart that you can see on the screen here. And you can just replicate this in your notes if you want. And, uh, and if you want, you can just kind of fill this in as we go along. So let's look at what does the Old Testament teach us about stealing? What does the Old Testament teach us about stealing? Turn over to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. And we're going to look at three particular stories here. And these stories aren't real stories. Uh, they're laws. They're laws. They're hypothetical stories. They're, they're situations that could happen in the future. And this particular section of the book of Deuteronomy we're about to look at is all about stealing. Everything is about stealing. And it begins in Deuteronomy 23, verse 19, and it goes all the way through Deuteronomy 24, verse 15. So it's about a chapter long, but it spans uh, between uh, two chapters. And what this passage does is it pictures for us many different situations where you're not supposed to steal. This is like the Bible's little 100 way, 101 ways not to steal little handbook. Uh, there's just a ton of different scenarios given to us to help us to see that there's really no exception to this rule. All stealing is bad, no matter what the context is. But I want to just hone in on just three of these, okay? Just three hypothetical stories and show you how the Old Testament describes a thief. Our three stories really define, uh, define our thief with three different qualities. And so let's look at the first passage, Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25, to learn our first lesson about stealing. It says in verse 24, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Now, this law allows, allowed for people in Israel to walk through other people's fields just as they were passing through town and pull the grapes off vines and the grain off of the ears of grain and the fruit off of the trees, and et cetera, et cetera, and then they could eat them right then and there. Now, we don't really have a good equivalent to this in our culture. You can't just waltz through a grocery store and start munching on a bag of Oreos and guzzling a two-liter uh, two bottle of Mountain Dew and then walk out the door and say, hey, I was just in the neighborhood passing through and I thought I might grab a little snack because I was hungry. Thanks for the free treat. And then you can just walk off into the sunset with a full tummy. It doesn't work that way in our culture. You have to pay for it. And even at that, it's very inappropriate to eat what you buy 
before you buy it. You can't just be snacking on all the all your your food in your grocery cart, you know, before you actually go through the checkout line. That's rude, and people are going to think that you're actually stealing. But Israel had no restrictions on people's fields. They could eat as much as would fill their stomachs at that moment, and it came at no charge for them whatsoever. Now, this isn't culturally, culturally normal. This isn't uh, something that you know every culture practices in the world. Um, so the question is, why is Israel an exception to the rule here? Well, it's very simply this, because we, you have to remember the, the, the fundamental principle about the Eighth Commandment. God owns everything. God is making a statement within Israel that he owns that field, not the neighbor. He gets to say if other people are allowed to walk through and grab some dinner or not, and he allows it because it's a ministry of mercy to those who are traveling and are hungry. But there's a catch to all this. You can't just run in and start filling up shopping carts full of grapes. You can't just fill up baskets full of, uh, full of grain. It doesn't work that way. Verse 24 says, you shall not put, in any, put, in, put any in your bag. You can't put any grapes in your bag. You can't stockpile your neighbor's food. And the question is, well, why not? Well, if you think about it, because it would completely deplete someone of their precious produce. You get all kinds of wackos walking through every day grabbing all your grapes off the shelf, and by, the, and by day's end, you'd have nothing left. There wouldn't be anything available for you to eat or to sell off. And there's nothing you could do about it because God said they could take everything, but, but, it, but it's not this way. Uh, that would be stealing, and so they, they could only take as much as they could eat right then and there. And verse 25 says, You shall not swing a sickle at your neighbor's standing grain. A sickle is a very sharp knife that is used to slash down the, the, the standing grain. And the standing grain is just the stalks of grain that are standing straight up before they're harvested. Basically, God says, don't harvest your neighbor's grain for yourself. That's his job. That's his livelihood. That would be stealing. So again, they could only take as much as they could eat right then and there. Now, think about this. Why would someone disobey law like this? Why would someone come in and instead of eating what, what would fill their tummies uh, up, up uh, what would fill their tummies up, they would start loading up shopping carts of grapes and harvesting the grain and putting them together to make boxes of raisin bran for themselves or something like that. Why would they do that? Well, that person's greedy. That person's greedy. It's, it's, it's about... Um, it's not about, oh, I'm hungry. I think I'll store up a, a bunch of food for the winter. No, it's, it's more like I could make a business out of stealing my neighbor's food. So that's why God puts a cap on how much they can take. Because if not, the greedy, excessive, uh, or sorry, the greedy, aggressive crazies are going to rob you dry. Really what God is saying, doing here is he's exposing the heart of a greedy person. This law teaches us a little bit, a little something about stealing. It's not just taking something from someone else. It's often a form of greed. And I think that's how we most often see stealing, but you know, somehow it benefits me 
But it's an important lesson to remember. Stealing comes from the heart, and often it's a heart of greed. So the first lesson that we learn about stealing in the Old Testament is that a thief is greedy. A thief is greedy. But let's now turn our attention to the very next set of verses in Deuteronomy, except now we have to cross over to chapter 24. And for this next story, we're going to examine Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And I read this. I'm sorry. And as I read this, um, pay attention to what's being said here. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husbands who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Now pause for a moment here. What did you just read? Does this sound anything like stealing at all? No, it doesn't. Actually, it doesn't sound like stealing at all. It sounds like marriage and divorce, doesn't it? Where's the stealing in all this? On the surface, this story is about divorce. But underneath the surface, we're going to see that this actually has to do with theft. Theft. Um, let's map this out. I'm going to draw this here for you. There is this woman and she's happy because she gets married and she's got these flowers in her hand because she's it's her wedding day, right? And she marries this guy and we'll call him Nimrod. We'll call her Gomer. <laughs> okay? And so Nimrod marries Gomer. And then what happens is there is another man who enters in the equation because, uh, well, in just, in just a second, but Nimrod thinks that Gomer cheated on him. And so what he does is he divorces her. He divorces her. And so he's really upset. He's really mad. So I'm going to draw his really mad face. And, and she's really sad because she, she's divorced and she's got no one to provide for her now. Well, then along comes this other guy. And she marries this other guy, which is great for her because she gets supported now. And we'll call this guy Ichabod. And if you're wondering, like, why are we calling these people all these weird names? Because these are all biblical Hebrew names, uh, except for Nimrod. Nimrod's not a Hebrew name, but, uh, but it's a biblical name. So, um, so Ichabod's really happy, and Gomer becomes really happy because she's married again. But then something really bad happens, and Ichabod 
dies. Let's just say for the sake of argument, he dies. In our passage, it says that he either divorces or he dies. Let's just, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and let's just say that he dies. It's like, how is that better? Well, because at least it's not sin, okay? So he dies and Gomer is now left unmarried again. And then as lo and behold, something happens and Nimrod remarries Gomer. And it's like, why would he do that? Like he just divorced her because he thought she was cheating on him, but now he remarries her. Why would he do that? Something shady's going on with Nimrod. Uh, he's not a great guy. There's something about this guy that's completely off. And so uh, this, this is really strange. Nimrod just divorced Gomer. He doesn't even like her because he thinks she cheated on him. What on earth is he doing marrying her again? Well, check this out, okay? When it comes to getting married, what, what in all likely happened was Gomer had some kind of an inheritance from her family that she brought into the marriage with Nimrod uh, when they first got married. And so Nimrod got really rich off of Gomer. But then he divorces her and he gets to keep all the money for himself. So this guy is, is super greedy, right? Well, then on top of that, Ichabod no doubt has some money too when he marries Gomer. And so what happens when Ichabod dies is that all his money goes to Gomer. And so when Nimrod sees that, he decides to remarry Gomer, and in just, in just a, an instant, he doubles his fortune. So Nimrod is a, completely, um, is a completely greedy man. Um, and think about this a little bit more. If, if, if Nimrod's willing to remarry Gomer, even though she supposedly cheated on him, then why did he divorce her in the first place? She probably never cheated on him in the first place because he's totally willing to remarry her again. He made a false accusation against her to get rid of her for some unspecified reason. But the reason is probably he just wanted her inheritance. And so, so that's kind of most, most likely what's going on here. Do you see his logic? He's crazy, clever, cunning, conniving. He's a con artist. And bottom line, what we learn about Nimrod is not just that he's greedy, although that's true, but number two, we learn from this particular passage that a thief is dishonest. Dishonest. I mean, look at the, the different ways that he was scheming to, get, to make this happen. He's so dishonest that the text doesn't even tell us about his dishonesty. That's how clever he is. He's scheming underneath the surface to get what he wants. And so to say that a, thief, that a thief is dishonest here is really putting it lightly in Nimrod's case, but Nimrod shows you just how far down the rabbit hole goes here. There's no limit to, to how far a thief is willing to go uh, to take his schemes. You see, stealing is more than greed. It opens up a can of all kinds of dishonest worms. It's lie upon lie, deception upon deception to get whatever you want. That's the nature of stealing. Let's look at our third passage here. Skip over verse 5 
And let's jump into verse 6 of chapter 24 to see our final example of stealing in the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy 24, verse 6, No one shall take a mill or an upper, upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Now I need to explain a few things here off the bat so that you understand what's going on. First of all, you need to know something about, about what taking a pledge is. A pledge is something that someone takes as insurance until you can uh, pay a certain debt back to that person. Um, and you definitely need an illustration to help you out, to, to help you understand this, I think. Let's say you've got a pile of clothes all over your floor, and I don't think this is really a stretch uh, to, a, to imagine that's probably the case right now. And your mom's been asking you to clean your room for some time now. And your mom's getting irritated at your laziness. And because of that, you are, in a sense, in debt to your mom with this chore. And until you clean your room, that debt's not paid. So what does your mom do to ensure that you get it done? She takes something from you as a pledge. Let's say she takes your Xbox One, boys, or maybe your cell phone, girls. Uh, and this is what she says. You're not getting this back until you clean your room. That's a pledge. It's a little insurance on her part to make sure you pay back the debt and clean your room. She has just leveraged the situation in her favor to get you to do what she wants you to do. It's effective because if you don't clean your room, you ain't playing no Xbox One anytime soon. And if you don't hang up your clothes, you ain't texting your BFF. That's a pledge. The second thing you need to know is that you need to know what a mill is and an upper millstone is. And here's a picture on the screen of what, what that is to kind of help you visualize it. The mill is the round basin on the ground. And the millstone is that big wheel that's kind of sitting on top of the, the basin there. And what you would do is you would normally pour in olives or grain or whatever you harvested into that basin. And then you would tie a donkey or some other kind of mammal to this wooden post that's connected to that, um, that upper millstone wheel. And, and, and the idea is the, the donkey would walk around and it would move that wheel inside the basin and crush all the food inside. And that's how you would make your food and, and be able to sell it off as a business or be able to eat it yourself. And so you might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, so what? What does this have to do with stealing it all? Well, you have to understand that back in those days, a mill like this one was your life. It was your life. It's the way you made your food. It's the way you made your money. This was the primary tool you had to do your job. Without this tool, you couldn't work and you couldn't eat. So it's like your job and your kitchen all in one. Now, stay with me here for a moment. If someone takes that mill basin as a pledge, or even that upper millstone, that round circular crusher, can you do your job? The correct answer is no, you can't. You can't work, you can't eat if either of those parts are gone. So here's where stealing comes into play. Let's say you borrow like $1,000 from me and you need to pay me back, but I don't trust you. I don't think you will pay me back. So I take something from you as a pledge. I take this mill or maybe this upper millstone and I say to you, until you pay me back, you can't have this back. And you might be thinking, well, so what? Well, what's the problem with that? Here's the thing. How on earth can I expect you to pay me back 
if you don't have your mill or your upper mill stone that earns you the money you need to pay me back. And top it all off, you don't even have a way to make yourself food to keep yourself alive long enough to make money anyways. It's the most ridiculous pledge on the planet. There's no way that I'm going to get my money back by taking away this mill or millstone as a pledge. See the problem? You can't just go to somebody and take a pledge that's going to incapacitate them from, com from even paying you back with um, uh, the debt that, you, that that person owes. Now, what, what do we learn about this, this particular case of stealing here? Think about this, okay? You still owe me $1,000 in debt. I know that that mill, that upper millstone is your life. And without it, you can't work and you can't eat. I know that. So why on earth would I take that away from you? Why would I make sure that I'm never going to get paid back? There's no advantage for me to take this. That's because in this case, I wouldn't take the mill or the millstone because I want you to pay me back. The reason I would take it is because I want you to suffer. I want you to die. I don't care about being paid back. I want you to suffer some sort of consequences because at the end of the day, I think that you've wronged me in some way and I want you to pay. I want you to pay dearly, not just a fine. I want you to pay, uh, I want you to suffer. And, and so most likely the reason why this wealthy individual wants to make this poor person suffer is because he's out for revenge. He thinks this poor person has wronged him in some way and this is his way of paying him back. You know, oh, so you think that you can get the best of me? Well, try this on for size. I'll take your source of life. Now let's see who's really in charge. That's what's going on here. And a thief isn't just greedy and he's not just dishonest. The final lesson that we learn from the Old Testament is that a thief is also for unforgiving. A thief is unforgiving. He's vengeful. He's vindictive. He's on a rampage to right all his wrongs by whatever means he deems necessary. So that's kind of the picture of a thief in the Old Testament. A thief is greedy. A thief is dishonest. A thief is unforgiven. unforgiving. There's a lot underneath the surface of a thief. It's not just taking stuff from people. But let's jump into the New Testament now, and let's look at one final story. Um, we come across another thief, and this time, unlike the Old Testament stories, this is a real story about a real thief. So turn over to the book of Luke, and we're going to look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. This is a very familiar story about a tax collector whom you are very aware of named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. And you know the song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. That's the story we're talking about here. And here, on the screen here, I've got a picture of a real sycamore tree in the city of Jericho as it stands today. I've actually seen this tree in person. It's a real tree. And so if you've ever wondered, like, if Zacchaeus was such a wee little man, how did he climb a tree? Well, you can kind of see the limbs are are, you know, they're, they're kind of near the ground and you could actually jump up on it even if you're a small person. So it's not that, it's not that far of a stretch to imagine. But let's actually read this story in its entirety from verses 1 to 10, and then I'll explain a few things and draw a few conclusions, okay? 
uh, he, he being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he, was, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when, he's, when they saw it, they all grumbled and, and said, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it full fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, is also, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and you need to understand that tax collectors were hated by everyone in that culture. No one liked a tax collector. And you might be asking yourself, well, why not? Well, let me kind of explain to you the background of why people hated tax collectors. Tax collectors were required by the Roman government to collect a fixed amount of taxes from their citizens. Uh, once a tax collector gained, or, or sorry, uh, collected uh, those taxes, anything else he gained from them was his to keep. And there weren't a lot of rules that prevented tax collectors from getting more money and there weren't really any policies that governed how a tax collector had to go about collecting fees. They pretty much could do whatever they wanted. And as you can imagine, this opened the door for all kinds of fraudulent practices. Uh, the sky was really the limit. They used whatever means they could get their hands on to rip money out of people's wallets. Uh, extortion, blackmail, larceny, exploitation, bribery, loan, loan sharking, and and. Probably, you don't even know what all that means, but it sounds bad, doesn't it? The guy was a certifiable con artist. Uh, he's leverage 2.0. And Luke 19.2 tells us Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He was the ringleader of a group of tax collectors. The guy was a government-sanctioned thug, and there's nothing you as a law-abiding citizen could do about it. That made people pretty mad at the likes of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was all three descriptions of a thief that we just learned about all rolled up into one. He was greedy, he was dishonest, he was unforgiving. And we see that in this particular text. First, he was greedy. Luke 19.2 says that he was rich. He was rich. And that should be a pretty, pretty good clue right there that this guy was greedy. If you're rich as a tax collector, you're greedy because the business wasn't, wasn't inherently wealthy. You made your money by employing all kinds of wicked, wicked tactics. Second, he was dishonest. Luke 19.8 says, if I've defrauded anyone, uh, and to defraud someone is to use all kinds of deceitful schemes to get your money. And that includes lying and deception and all kinds of other forms of dishonesty. So he was completely dishonest. And third, he was unforgiving. 
That word defraud also in verse 8 literally means to, to uh, pressure or to shake down. Um, and you can kind of like get this image of, you know, someone picking someone up and shaking them so all their change comes out of their pockets. Well, that's exactly what Zacchaeus was into. He would put pressure on people to get their money. And he didn't, he didn't care how it affected them. He was willing to hurt others to pad his own wallet. So Zacchaeus was greedy, he was dishonest, and he was unforgiving. He was the epitome of a thief. He was everything the Old Testament said he shouldn't be. And he was Jewish, so he knew what the Old Testament said. He knew this is everything he shouldn't be. But this passage doesn't paint Zacchaeus in a bad light here. Something changes. And what we learn about stealing in this New Testament passage is not all the bad qualities about stealing. We learn all the good qualities that a thief can have if Jesus steps into your life. First of all, what we learn is that, yes, a thief is greedy. But a thief can learn to be generous. A thief is greedy, but a thief can learn to be generous. Look again at verse 8 of this, of this passage. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus was willing to give up half of what he owned. Half. Half to give it to the poor. This dude was rich, and so to give up half of what he owned was a lot of money. And it's hard to let go of money like that, but he did it. And to top it all off, if he defrauded anyone, if he took any money by force or by threat, he said, I'll pay those people back fourfold. Fourfold. That's four times as much as he took from them. That's like 300% interest. If he took $3,000 from someone, that means he was going to give them $12,000 back. That's radical. But Zacchaeus understood a very important principle here. And it's a principle that really started in the Old Testament, but we actually find it in the New Testament too. It's very simply this. You don't stop becoming a thief when you stop stealing. You stop becoming a thief when you start giving. That's when you stop becoming a thief. Ephesians 4.28 uh, echoes this principle. Let the thief who steals, uh, sorry, let, let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him lab labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The whole purpose of no longer stealing is not just so you stop stealing, it's so that you can share with someone in need. You can give to others. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. What's the opposite of stealing? It's not not stealing. It's being generous. And so Zacchaeus got it. Zacchaeus became a generous person. But second, a thief is dishonest. But a thief can learn to be honest. Look again at verse 8. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now think about this. Zacchaeus was typically a very dishonest person, and that was his livelihood. To admit that that was wrong was such 
a difficult thing to admit. That's a hard thing to repent of. But Zacchaeus wasn't trying to scheme his way into more money anymore. He's done with that. He's open. He's honest. He's willing to do what's right. And so he learned to be honest. And number three, yes, a thief is unforgiving, but a thief can learn to be forgiven. A thief can learn to be forgiven. Look back at verse three. Jump back into verse three. It says, and Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus sought after Jesus. He sought to to figure out who Jesus was. It was a superficial seeking. Who is this man that all these crowds are surrounding him? But jump down to verse 10. Notice the, the kind of the play on words here. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus did the seeking first, but it was superficial. But Jesus sought not, not, not Zacchaeus superficially, but in depth. He sought to come save his soul. So who does the real seeking here? It's Christ. It's Christ. Zacchaeus tried to find Jesus, but he couldn't. He was just searching casually to see who he was. But Jesus initiated a search for his soul. As bad as Zacchaeus was, and the crowd hated him, and so he must have been a really bad man, Jesus extended the hope of salvation to even one such as himself. Jesus calls him lost. Lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And I don't want you to be confused by that word. Um, that doesn't mean that Zacchaeus was kind of like lost, like someone like, like lost in a, a grocery store or something like that. Um, that's not what it means to be lost. Um, it means to be perishing, to be perishing. Jesus seeks and saves those who are on the path of destruction. They're locked into a destiny of death, and there's nothing they can do to change it. That's what it means to be lost. You're hopelessly perishing. But Jesus, he seeks out those who are perishing. He seeks those who are, who, who are supposedly truly lost for good. And even though Zacchaeus was the most unforgiving person out there, Jesus still forgave Zacchaeus. It reminds me of the precious story of the thief on the cross. Uh, Jesus was crucified between two crucified thieves. We're used to thinking about Jesus crucified by himself on a hill, but he was actually crucified between two thieves. And as all three were dying, Luke records later in chapter 23 that one of the thieves who, hanged, uh, who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other thief rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. One thief mocked Jesus. The other thief recognized that he was getting what he deserved. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus didn't deserve to be there. But despite the lost condition he was in, he asked Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
And just like that, this thief who deserved punishment by crucifixion, which probably meant that he stole something from the government so valuable that it made him a traitor, that thief Jesus saved in an instant. There's no reason Jesus should have saved him. He could have ignored him. Uh, He could have blasted him with fire from heaven, but he didn't. He took the time and the last bit of energy that he had left in this world to invite him to walk through the gates of heaven. And Jesus' own death became the substitution that this thief needed to enter into the presence of the Lord. Even the worst of thieves can be forgiven. We've all been this thief. We've all been Zacchaeus. We deserve no attention from God. But that's the beauty of grace, isn't it? Because Romans 5, 6, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the beauty of grace that God, that God initiates salvation on our behalf when we least deserve it, when we are at our most helpless state and can do nothing to save ourselves. That's the hope that, that God showed Zacchaeus. That's the hope that God showed uh, the thief on the cross. That's the hope that extends to all of you in this room today. But let me get real for you, with you for a moment and show you how this intersects your life right here, right now. Because you might be thinking to yourself, but, okay, I don't steal. How does this apply to me? And, and I, I recognize that I, I was, I've, been, I've been a sinner and, 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 I need, uh, and I need forgiveness and I've repented of my sins. So, so how can I apply this now? Let me, know, op- let me open up your minds to three ways that we steal and we don't even realize we're doing it. Three ways that we steal and we don't even realize we're doing it. Number one is bootlegging. Bootlegging. And this might make you a little bit uncomfortable because bootlegging is something that is actually pretty common today. Bootlegging is the unauthorized recording and duplication of a live or broadcast performance. It's basically taking your iPhone recording a show on video, and then redistributing it around, even if it's for free. This includes music concerts, movies, theater presentations, you name it. That's illegal. That's stealing. And here's where it can get really uncomfortable. Watching videos that are bootlegged, I think, is also illegal. And it's also stealing. Now, it's hard to know sometimes what qualifies as bootlegged and what doesn't, but we have to be careful. I have to be careful. Check what you watch. Make sure it's legal. And the second thing, which is very similar along these lines, is online online piracy. Piracy. Uh, This is downloading music for free or movies for free or or computer programs for free or etc. It's all illegal. It's all stealing. Online piracy is a huge industry among teenagers. And so you need to watch yourself. I used to, when I, was, uh, when I was in high school, there was a program called LimeWire, which you could download all kinds of music for free. And it was started out as a, as a legal program where you can download different sound bites and things like that, but it very quickly turned into a way that you could pass around um, copyrighted music. 
and you could listen to music for free with, without buying it. And I kind of got into it and didn't realize it was wrong, and, and, but it was wrong. It was, it was illegal, and I had to get rid of it. And so we have to be careful. Just because it's online and it's easy um, and, there's a, and there's a smaller chance you won't get caught doesn't make it right. You need to be extra vigilant. Is it illegal? If it's illegal, then it's stealing. It's stealing. Number three, and this is one we need to be extra, extra careful of and one we don't think about a lot, and that is this, plagiarism. Plagiarism. Plagiarism is taking someone else's work or ideas and passing them off as your own. For you, plagiarism is most often abused in school. Uh, you're writing a paper, someone says something that sounds good, so you throw it, um, so you throw it into your paper, and you forget to put quotation marks around it, or maybe you just kind of purposely not put quotation marks around and just change a couple words, and voila, it's, it, it's like you say it yourself. And you may not even mean to make it look like you said it yourself, but it's still plagiarism. It's still plagiarism. You must cite whatever you, you borrow from someone else. It's still wrong. It's still stealing. And stealing, and so stealing, as we kind of learn here, it isn't just taking stuff. There are ways that we're guilty of stealing, and we don't even think about it. We don't even think about it. We have to be extra careful. We must strive to be above reproach in every single way. You know, funny thing about being a thief, the stealing never stops. They never think, you know, thieves, hardcore thieves never think to themselves, I'll just do this one score and then I'll be set for life. Or, or I'm sorry, they, they, think, they might think to themselves, I'll just do this one score and, and then I'll be set for life. But, but it's un- insatiable. You can't get enough. You're always looking for more. And the answer to your craving, ironically enough, isn't accumulating more things. It's not collecting more stuff. It's not getting what you've always wanted. That's not what satisfies. Thieves are filled with greed, envy, and jealousy, and there's, and there's nothing, and enough's never enough. But you want to know what the secret is to not stealing? You want to know what will actually fill that hole in your heart? It's actually learning to be content with what you have. It's learning to be content. Uh, turn over to Philippians chapter 4 for a moment. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. This is uh, the book of Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul. And this is what he says at the very end of the book, at the very end of the letter. He says in verse 11, I am not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that last verse might sound very familiar to you because it's kind of plastered all over, you know, sports, you know, media and stuff like that. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But that's not like a, uh, you know, a carte blanche verse that, that, uh, that becomes your life verse for doing whatever, you know, for, for uh, being able to do what, uh, anything that you want to be able to do. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I can handle any situation of life. I can respond the right type of way because it's Christ working in me and strengthening me. And this type of attitude is what, uh, what characterizes contentment. This is contentment. 
This is recognizing that I can be satisfied in whatever circumstances of life I'm in, whether it's good times or bad times. And this comes from the Apostle Paul, who, get this, five times he received at the hands of the Jews 39 lashes. Five times 39 lashes. That means being whipped 39 times over. Uh, sorry, 39 times, five times over. That's crazy. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A day and the night he was lost at sea. He went on many journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false teachers and fake Christians, all in severe toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, constantly exposed to the cold. And on top of all these things, there was the daily pressure on him of his concern for all the churches. He was the most stressed out individual in the world. And if anyone had a right to say that the grass was greener on the other side, he did. He did. He had every right to be jealous of others, to be envious, to be greedy, but he learned the secret of contentment. And the question is, how did he do it? Paul, how did you do it? How did you change your heart desires from being one of bloodthirsty, greedy desire to, to one of calm, content satisfaction. It's very simply this. He got the Eighth Commandment. He understood the very basic fundamental principle that God owns everything. And if God owns everything, He sets the rules, and He determines how much this person should have, and this person should have, and this person should have. And he determines how this moment should go, and this moment should go, and this moment should go. In other words, if you could sum it all up, the Apostle Paul embraced the absolute sovereignty of God. He embraced the absolute sovereignty of God. The secret to not stealing is contentment, and the secret to contentment is embracing God's sovereignty, the fundamental principle of the Eighth Commandment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Eighth Commandment, and we are so thrilled to know that you have given us this instruction to help us live lives that are not just honoring to you, but that actually bring us great satisfaction in life. We can learn to be content. We can learn to be content by trusting in your absolute sovereignty, and that is the most comforting thing in our lives when we realize that you are in complete control of everything. And that helps us, that teaches us, that instructs us not to steal, not to panic and to try to um, manufacture um, success in our life or satisfaction in our life or to be, or to be filled and, and to have everything we ever want to do in our lives. We can trust your provision we can trust your plan, just as Romans 8.28 says, that all things are working together for good, for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that if, that if we are believers, that all these things are working together for good. So let us trust you. Let us embrace your absolute sovereignty. And let us not steal, but let us um, honor the principle that you own everything. And let us respect the ownership of others. For the glory and honor of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has saved us 
from hearts that want to steal. In his name we pray these things. Amen.